and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, back from a bit of an ill-timed hiatus to uh, recount a pretty wild week in the NBA, and joining me to do that, of course, is my co-host, Joseph Gasharo. Talk to me, Cash. We've been gone so long that the Miami Heat got to the precipice of the NBA Finals and of sweeping the Celtics and got halfway to the first ever blown 3-0 lead all just in the time since we last podcasted, which wasn't even that long ago. It's not like we went two weeks without a pod. I think we, it was eight days. You were away. I had a day or two off. But here we are. And one or two I uh, departed for, for my sister's wedding and one game had been played in each series. We'd only actually talked about one of them. We talked about game one of Lakers Nuggets. That's all we had on record on this podcast. I came back and the Western Conference Finals was over. Then I caught a nasty bug, which I'm still kind of trying to shake off. So we had to push this back another couple of days. And that it's kind of been fortuitous, actually, because it's allowed us to take stock of the turnaround that has occurred in that Celtics Heat series, which I don't know. I guess we can debate how sort of surprising or unforeseen it was. I think definitely at the point in game four where the Heat were like up nine points in the third quarter seemed to be rolling. Obviously, they're at home. They have the crowd behind them. We've seen the Celtics kind of let go of the rope in that game three. To say At that least. point, I was I was feeling like the series was over. But looking at it holistically, I don't know that this is necessarily surprising that we've arrived at this point. But I'll ask you off the jump. I mean, what have you seen in these last couple of games? How are you feeling about this series at the point that it's at now, going back to Miami for this game six? What's happening in the East Finals, man? Well... I'd say the first thing that pops out at me, other than, look, like, and I know you mentioned it in a text last night about, look, it's a make or miss league, right? I think the the Celtics shot 29% from deep in the first three games of this series. They've shot 40% from deep the last couple games. We know how three-point shooting has kind of carried the heat throughout this postseason run. So that's part of it. Like, shots falling versus shots not falling, obviously part of it. I think Boston's defense has been a lot better the last two and a half games like on a string they found some good stuff with Robert Williams too that's all good but I also think there's a part of it like you mentioned them letting go of the rope in game three like that was an abomination but a big part of it is just like in contrast to that and I don't like boiling it down to something this simple they are straight up playing harder and more desperate since going down through nothing like and game, the, the early parts of game five I thought were a really good example of that where like some of the 50-50 balls or loose balls or rebounds they were I won't even call them 50-50 balls because some of the balls the Celtics were getting too early in game five were definitely less than 50% for them in terms of like there was one where Jalen Brown got blocked by Bam Adebayo probably around the free throw line and 
the ball kind of ricocheted off someone else in a way that's like, okay, Bam should come up with this. And if not him, it's like the, whoever was beside him as a Heat player. And somehow, Jalen Brown, after getting blocked, like goes into this maze of two or three Heat bodies, comes out with the ball, just like refuses to not come out of it with the ball. Now, the Celtics didn't score on that possession, actually. They missed the, uh, the second chance opportunity too. But that was an example of kind of like what I was seeing. There was a, maybe like two possessions after that where Al Horford missed uh, a look in tight and in between two heat bodies, like somehow ripped down the offensive rebound. I think the Celtics got a three out of that possession. There was a lot of that early in that game five, especially where like, yeah, you can say at this level, it's obviously about way more than the like cliche, who wants it more, like who's playing harder. But it's also very evident that the Celtics were playing a lot harder or at the very least, a lot more desperate in these last couple of games. And I thought in game five, particularly maybe with the home crowd behind them again, as opposed to game three, when, as you admitted, they kind of let go of the rope. I do think that's a big part of it, but obviously there is more to it, whether it's the shots falling or like I said, that Celtics defense, which looks a lot better and just so much crisper and on a string. I think that was evident from the start of game four too. Like even when they were trailing in that yes. game, I thought their defense was on a string, airtight rotations. The Heat were kind of just beating it with pretty sound ball movement and good shot making early on. But eventually I think we saw the fruits of Boston's labor. Like they stuck with it. Uh, and from the start of that game, I thought they were really locked in defensively. I do want to say, you know, apart from that game three, it like games one and two, I've, I've probably said this before in some form or fashion, but I do think it bears repeating. I feel like in general, People are reluctant to acknowledge the role that jump shooting variance plays in these outcomes. And I don't want to boil it all down to that. There's a lot more to it than that. And we're going to get into talking about some of the other factors here. But you mentioned the Celtics shooting 29% from deep through those first three games. The Heat were at 48%. And if you look at the types of shots that those teams were creating, like, by most measures, the Celtics were creating better shots for a group of shooters that, at least if we're judging based on like this regular season's worth of evidence, was significantly better. Like more wide open threes, a lot more catch and shoot threes. But the Heat, especially on pull ups, they were shooting 45% on like a lot of pull up threes through those first three games. And in these last couple of games, well, first of all, their three-point volume has really dried up, and that's a big credit to the Celtics' defense, I think. But that pull-up three-point shooting that we saw carrying them through those first three games has really dried up. They're at 22% on pull-up threes over the last couple of games. And obviously the reality for you know the, the true shooting talent of that team is somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. But I think, okay, we could say jump, sh like jump shooting is a really important part of the game. Like teams deserve credit when they hit their shots and I guess deserve scorn when they miss their shots. Like you have to hit your shots in order to win basketball games. But I think what gets me sometimes is when the reaction is to like question or doubt or completely eviscerate like the very idea of a team and say, it's like fundamentally flawed. This never could have worked. The team is broken or they hate each other or like they clearly have to blow it up rather than factoring in, you know, some of these variables. 
and also just looking at the history and being able to say like Boston rode almost the exact same roster and like very similar offensive and defensive principles to like the doorstep of a title last year. And if you get to the doorstep of a title, you are capable of winning a title. So I just thought, you know, even if we had talked about this after game three, you know that I would have brought this up. I thought the hand wringing after they went down 3-0 and the, the sort of premature eulogy is not just for their season, but kind of like for this whole era of Celtics basketball was a little bit much. And I'll also mention like, this is a team that is very reliant on jump shots, like particularly reliant on jump shots. So they are more susceptible than the average team to, you know, that jump shooting variance kind of undoing them. But that doesn't mean that they can't be really successful with it. That said, uh, I think the process by which they came by those threes was a lot cleaner in games four and five, just better ball movement didn't get stuck nearly as often, like so much better about like making quick decisions off of the catch drive pass, shoot, like extending advantages. They touched the paint more in games four and five than they did in games one to three. So I, I wrote a piece about this. Like I, I dug into some of the numbers, a big one that jumped out to me and like totally matched the eye test was 18 more passes per game. They average in these last two games than in the first three, uh, 50 potential assists in those two games up from 44 in the first three games, just like more passes, more productive passes, creating better three point looks. They got 17 wide open threes on average in those two games. Miami averaged six. So if you want to say like, yeah, the process really matters. There's a really good illustration of it wasn't just about, you know, suddenly Miami is not hitting shots and Boston is, Boston was getting much cleaner three-point looks and they were converting them, which is a really important part of that. Like if you're not hitting your shots, like none of the other micro adjustments are going to matter, but they did. And I, I thought their offense just flowed really nicely. And so much of it just flowed from them doing simple stuff, right? Like they kept it simple in terms of, okay, they have these buttons they can push where they're going to get to on the ball. Tatum orchestrating and they're putting... Struess in screening action, Duncan Robinson in screening action, Kevin Love in screening action, Cody Zeller in screening action. Those are like automatic two on the ball. Sometimes it's a switch and double. Uh, Sometimes it's just like a straight up hedge or a blitz. But regardless, they're getting two on the ball and they're able to play out of that. And I think coming into this series... That's why I liked the Celtics to win it. That's probably the biggest reason that they were such a heavy favorite to win this series is like Miami has these vulnerable defenders in its rotation and Boston doesn't really. And Miami was able to find some soft spots to exploit. And we could talk about that. Uh, You know, even shockingly, one of those soft spots being an all defensive second teamer in Derek White. But the the fact is like Boston, I think kind of like simplified things and was like, we're just going to press these buttons over and over and over again. And we're going to be able to play out of these sort of man advantage situations when Miami is, you know, we can argue, I guess, about whether they're forced to do this, but when Miami is putting two on the ball, we're able to play out of that. And that's, I think doing wonders just for their offensive fluidity right now. Yeah, no, I think that was all well said. I think the Celtics, 
process is definitely better. And I'm with you in that there was definitely, I'd say, especially through the first two games, an overreaction to the ultimate results when process-wise, and if you watch those first two games, like very easily could have been a 1-1 series, very easily could have been 2-0 Boston if a couple things had been flipped going to Miami. The only thing for me that it was like I thought any criticism was 100% justified was that game three effort. Just like like looking like a, a deer in headlights for a team that, as you mentioned, got to the doorstep of a title last year. Like this isn't some young team that's like never been here before. Like this is a team who has faced and overcome some postseason adversity, who has gotten some big postseason wins over the last few years, got to the finals last year. I think what was disappointing, at least for me, and I'm sure for other people too, was how out of sorts they looked and unprepared for the moment they looked in game three in that hostile environment in Miami. But to their credit, they're halfway to the comeback now. I tweeted it last night. They're out of the 151 teams that have gone down 3-0. They're only the 15th to even force a game six. So they're already in like the upper, what, 10th percentile of teams that have gone down 3-0. Now, you know, you can complain about them going down 3-0 as is warranted, but here they are. And like, they've obviously got a shot now. Like you can say what you want about the fact no one has come back from 3-0 down, but at this point, it's just a 3-2 series. Like it's a series at this point. 3-2 is 3-2. It happens. You know, if they, if it had been a very competitive first four games and then the Celtics just lost game five at home, I don't think anyone would be saying, well, I can't win two in a row now. Like that's all it is. It's just two in a row. It's at 3-2. I will say, however, I still have a hard time like seeing and believing that the Heat and everything we've talked about with them, whether you want to talk about Heat culture, just like how good Jimmy Butler's been in the playoffs, although not the last couple of games, all of the, even just Spolstra being probably the best coach in the world right now, I still do find it hard to believe that they will fail to capitalize on four chances to close a team out. But, you know, Boston's crept close enough where like the margin for error is smaller. And when the margin for error is smaller and like, you know, you don't have the same cushion when you are the inferior team, it definitely is a little scary. And and then, yeah, like Jimmy has not been playoff Jimmy the last couple games. You know, obviously it's Jimmy Butler still seems very confident if you listen to him post game, but like he hasn't been the same player last couple the last couple games. Bam offensively just looks like wolf, man. Like, yeah. And the Celtics really amped up their pressure on Bam specifically, I think, in those last couple of games. And that was huge in terms of like the turnover disparity in Boston's favor was a real flipping of the script from early in the series and from what we saw in this matchup last year and what we would have expected just based on like their profiles, right? Boston is like a very low turnover forcing team and Miami force, I think the second highest opponent turnover rate in the league this year. Like we would not expect Boston to be dominating the possession battle in the way they did, but uh, their defensive pressure, I think especially on Bam was a big part of making that happen. Which makes sense because like we've seen this from Bam before when he does face pressure, when maybe the paint's a little packed and he has to come up with something. Like Bam is obviously a good playmaking big man. He's a skilled guy, but there are still flaws in his individual offensive package that like really can get exposed by a team like the Celtics, by good defenses. And it's happening right now. And like if if the Celtics kind of continue to shut that tap off, that really hurts the Heat's offense. 
Definitely, and that's I, th- that's one of the things we did kind of like an abbreviated series preview coming in, but like that was one of the things I spotlighted because that was something the Celtics started to do more and more last year as the series progressed was like not let Bam get comfortable in the middle of the floor, whether he's trying to dribble in traffic or whether he is posting up, especially when he's catching the ball on the short roll. We're pulling help over. Like, we're not giving him all this space to operate. And, like, guys are flashing in and out of his line of sight. Hands are swiping. They're not letting him get comfortable in the middle of the floor. They forced him into six turnovers in that game five. The turnover story was huge. Like, that was a big part of this. And, you know, connecting it to the offensive end, that really helped Boston's offense get out and transition. And early offense for them, I think, has been so key. I mean, it's obvious early offense is great, I guess, for any team. But in terms of like not letting Miami establish its shell, sometimes that means them getting set up in zone, which Boston has struggled with, although less so in game five. They started to get a lot more comfortable, I think, against the zone. But like not let Miami get set up in zone, not let them set up their backline help, just attack early, early, early. Forcing turnovers was a big part of that. They almost doubled their transition frequency from the first three games to the last two. But it wasn't just about the turnovers either. Like they were making, I think, more of a concerted effort to run just off of defensive rebounds as well. Uh, I I wanted to just go back to something you mentioned about like you can't see the Heat not pulling out this game six. Not even game six, just in general. I I can't see them failing to close them close a team out with four opportunities whether it's game six or even game seven on the road I just I'm not saying it's impossible but I don't know yeah. like like I said you, we both were talking about Spo being the best coach in the world I think last episode or two episodes ago you know we both know about playoff Jimmy like even though the last couple of games haven't been great I just it yeah it's hard for me to envision even though I think on paper all things being equal like they're the inferior team if you tell me They've got four chances to close a team out, whoever that team is. And you've got Jimmy Butler and Eric Spolstra on your side to do it. I'm like, they're going to find a way to do it. Whether it takes one or four of the, all four of the tries, they're going to find a way. It's a little bit like the gambler's fallacy though, right? Fair, no, fair. Like at this point, Boston only needs to win two. So it doesn't really matter that they've already won two. Agreed. And I think it speaks to what I was talking about before, where it's like, it, the the story, if Boston comes back to win, I maybe not entirely, but in large part is going to be about how Miami choked away a three nothing lead, and maybe that'll be warranted, and maybe it won't. It kind of depends on how they play in these next couple of games, but in those first three games, they were playing, I mean, immaculate basketball, like pristine defensive rotations unbelievable ball movement and incredible shooting that they just were not going to be able to sustain. I don't think it would be fair to expect them to sustain really like any level of the way they played in those first three games. They were unbelievable. And just because we say like they can't keep this up doesn't mean that they don't deserve an immense amount of credit for like playing above their heads for three games. But it's like if Boston comes back to win four now because they have all these baked-in matchup advantages and because they are the more talented team, well, then we should be able to look at that holistically and say, okay, like the better team ultimately won. They found 
you know, I guess the adjustments or the pressure points they needed to hit. And the talent won out in the end and Boston started making their shots and there wasn't really like a whole lot that Miami could do about it. And they deserve an immense amount of credit for pushing Boston to the brink in the first place. Yeah. Like we both said on our last episode and when we appeared on uh, the Raptor show with Will Lou that although on paper, the Celt- like this should be the Celtic series in almost a cakewalk because of all we know about the heat and like, Spo and Jimmy and all that goes into heat culture that we expected a long grueling series, despite all the advantages the Celtics had. And we both said, like, even if we're still picking Boston, it's going six or seven. And so if it ends up with like Celtics and seven, really like the heat lived up to our expectations in this series. It's gone exactly according to script and, and more than exceeded our expectations for the postseason as a whole. Yes. To your point, the path they took to get there will make them the target of ruthless criticism. And I I don't know what I feel about that because on one hand, like they will have been the first out of 151 teams in NBA history to blow a three nothing lead. Like I think you gotta wear that. Like there's no there's no getting around that. You do have to wear that. But you know, they are also the eight seed that almost lost a play in game, two play in games to not even make the playoffs, right? Like they are what, 15 games worse, or they were 15 games worse than what this, I think it was 42 wins versus 57 wins this matchup in the regular season. So, like, yeah, it, it is hard to square, right? Like, how much criticism do they get for blowing it if they blow it versus how much of it is just like, well, it did go the way it was supposed to go if the Celtics win in seven. I mean, I guess we don't have to preempt it. Like, we'll no. see what happens. And again, a lot of it will come down to, how they play. I thought I actually thought they played pretty well in game four in game five. I feel like a lot of their turnovers were actually unforced. Like they were just a little bit sloppy with the basketball. I thought Lowry was awful. Frankly, at a bio, like you mentioned, just wasn't great. That that was the game where I could, where, where I could look at and say like, yeah, actually the heat didn't play up to their capabilities in this one. Real quick on Lowry. And I, I completely understand that a lot of it is just like the physical limitations catching up to him, but it's jarring to see a guy that for most of his career, like, you know, I said was one of the smartest players I had ever seen play, like strict, like from a strict basketball IQ standpoint, I would always put him in that kind of like Chris Paul, LeBron, Draymond, now Jokic territory, Marcus Gasol, those kind of guys. Like Lowry was still is a basketball genius. And the one thing you didn't see him do, even if he was having a bad shooting game or not his best game, you didn't really see Kyle Lowry make those kind of like mental mistakes, like IQ related mistakes. Like those are the things that he just didn't do. And again, whether it's like the physical limitations just caught up to him and he doesn't, he just can't kind of control a game the way he once did. It's jarring to see Kyle Lowry, for example, be the guy who's like getting too deep on a drive and then making a pass in midair without knowing where that pass is going, which he did in game five and turned the ball over while the heat were making a bit of a run. It looked like they were going to get two easy points. Instead, Lowry turns it over under Boston's basket and the Celtics come back the other way. And that's the difference between the heat cutting at the 10 and instead Boston actually going back up 14. It's like these little things where, yeah, it's just, it's jarring and it's kind of sad, especially if you are sitting here in Toronto after watching, you know, Kyle Lowry's prime uh, as a Raptor. Those are just like the kinds of mistakes he didn't make. And it's a bit sobering to watch. 
We should mention he was starting that game because Gabe Vincent didn't play. Yeah. And Gabe Vincent's and status for game six is a big factor. Yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily have expected that, you know, coming into, I'll say coming into the postseason because even before this series, he'd been pretty important. But like, especially in this series, my God, was he exceptional in those first handful of games. And just in terms of like cracking Boston's defensive coverages, they're doing almost the opposite of what Miami's doing, which is like they're actively avoiding putting two on the ball. They'll switch or they'll drop. That seems to be sort of the duality that they've settled on. And in pick and rolls involving their big men, they feel comfortable dropping against most of Miami's ball handlers, right? Like they will drop against Jimmy. They'll drop against Lowry. They were dropping against Vincent. And he was really making them pay for it. And not having that, I thought, just really hurt them. Like, not having that pull-up element. He'd been so important uh, in those first few games. Not having that really hurt in Game 5. And yeah, his status is just going to be a huge swing factor for Game 6 and possibly Game 7. So that, that needs to be mentioned. That was part of the reason Lowry was pressed into duty in the starting lineup. And just didn't... In terms of the starting lineup in general, I, I'm curious. I, I thought it would have happened by now, to be honest, because Boston made what I thought was the right adjustment, and they made it in Game 3, and obviously it didn't make a difference in that game. Of- but just in this matchup, going back to one big lineups, I assumed that Miami would react to that by taking Kevin Love out of the starting lineup. I thought that that meant whether they just had to be really selective about when they played him or just decided he didn't really have a place in the series anymore. I thought they would make that decision and they didn't. They've continued to start him and it's just looked increasingly untenable to me. And we talked about, you know, the the automatics that Boston has in terms of like getting two on the ball. That's like the easiest one right there for them to attack. They're just getting great stuff out of that. And... Caleb Martin's sitting right there and he's playing out of his mind. Do you really need to overthink this? Like, I I think that that's the easy adjustment for Miami to make. No, I completely agree. Um, Okay, I'll take it back to what you said before about you can't see this Miami team and you invoked the specter of heat culture. I want to know, what does heat culture actually mean to you, Cash? Like, how do you define it? What does it look like? What is it? I think it is, one, and this is the part that I think doesn't get talked about enough because everyone talks about heat culture as this, like, almost like try hard, playing hard, grinding it up. I think, to me, the first pillar of heat culture is you have a superstar. Like, that's that's Miami's MO. That's Pat Riley's MO. That's, you know, part of the lure, like benefit of being in Miami on South Beach, you know, Pat Riley and everything that comes with that Heat team is you try to land superstar. You either recruit them in free agency or in the case of Jimmy Butler, you just count on the fact that even when you don't have cap space, a guy wants to come to your team and your market so bad that you find a way to get in. So that's one. You you have a superstar, big part of it. Then you have a team and players and including that superstar that are molded, whether you want to say molded in the kind of the vein of Pat Riley or then Spolstra as a coach, but that's where like the try hard, grime it out, leave it out. Like guys that aren't going to complain when Spolstra's putting them through practices and 
fitness drills that most players and most other teams would be complaining about because they're not really jiving with the modern NBA and all that. A team that's going to be ready to do things on the court that a lot of other players and teams maybe aren't comfortable doing. And you kind of combine the superstar, the great coaching of Spolstra, that kind of grimy, ready-to-die-out-there attitude that the players they find or turn them into those kind of players contribute. And you get this whole kind of mix where like they just end up with all the right ingredients like needed to win in the playoffs. And part of that is also usually great defense and a commitment to defense and a commitment to that end of the floor and a team that you can't really make uncomfortable because they have become comfortable being in the grimiest, most uncomfortable situations, if that makes sense. So to me, like that all adds up to heat culture. But I will also say that we can put whatever name we want on it. Like a big part of it, even I know when you joke around and talk about like heat devil magic is like, listen, for the most part, I don't care what market a team is in or how quote unquote grimy they are, whatever. If you go into a playoff series and you have the best player in the series or a guy capable of it when the playoffs roll around being like the best player in the world or in that discussion, and you have probably the best coach in the world, you're going to have a shot in every playoff series. And it's not necessarily about like the culture and the griminess and like a, the president of the organization. Like at, at the end of the day, it really is. It's just like Jimmy Butler can be the best player in the world when the playoffs roll around. And Eric Spolstra is the game's greatest tactician. And in a four of seven, two week series, those two guys usually will give you at very least a puncher's chance in a series. I'll just add to that. I think that was all well said. To me, a huge ingredient of it, I don't really invoke heat culture. I don't talk about it the way that you do. (laughs) But if I'm sort of putting a definition on it, to me, it's about empowering their role players. And I think that's the one thing that we consistently see, like postseason after postseason, is these guys kind of rising to the occasion because they've been entrusted and empowered to expand their games and believe in their ability to to do more and so we get to this stage of the playoffs and it's like wow Gabe Vincent and Max Struess and Caleb Martin are like running pick and roll and looking pretty damn proficient at doing it looking very comfortable and confident at this stage of the playoffs against you know, last year's Eastern Conference champion and one of the best defenses in the league, staying absolutely cool and like their medal is being tested and they're proving capable of it. It's like Duncan Robinson, who was sitting collecting dust for so much of the season, not only coming in and kind of like running his dribble handoff dance with Bam Adebayo like it's 2020 again, but also with the Celtics making this concerted effort to run the heat off the line, it's like, okay, he's putting the ball on the floor and he's getting into the teeth of the Celtics defense and he's finishing and he's spraying the ball out. He finished with nine assists in game five. Like, that's kind of what it's about to me. That's the most impressive and most praiseworthy part of it to me. It's like they, they put their faith in these guys and build them up so that when you get to this stage, they have that confidence in themselves and they show out. And I think that's a credit to the whole organization, not just for finding those guys, for developing them, like all that, but just empowering them in the way that they have. Like they're reaping the rewards of that right now. 
Yeah, um, and 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 to that point, I like I think yeah, a big part of it is finding them. Whether it's like scouting, big part of it is developing them. Obviously, player development. I think a big part of it is you know Coach Spo himself and that coaching staff, where it's like a lot of times you'll praise coaches for the X's and O stuff, or you'll praise coaches for being the type of coach that can motivate. I think I've always said like the, the best coaches do both, right? They're great people, people like they're people persons who can motivate, but they're obviously great tacticians too. But I think a big part of it that with Spo that maybe I won't say it's underrated because I think people talk about it, but in addition of you know being that motivating guy who's also a master tactician is that he does maximize maximize doesn't even like explain it really what he does with the talent at his disposal because to your point like these guys all exceed expectations a lot like the role players do and they're always ready right Duncan Robinson now being a great example and then to my point that I made earlier like I didn't just mean you know about ready to play grimy when I said they're never uncomfortable like I think that this is part of it, right? Like even a role player who's been sitting on the bench for mostly months gets called upon in the playoffs. And in that situation, it does not look uncomfortable. It looks very yeah. comfortable and ready. Haywood look. Highsmith looks mighty Dude, comfortable in this right. situation. And, like, this is my point. Like to me, that all blends into it, right? Like, yeah. I'll I'll joke not joke around, but I'll mention like the grimy stuff and how you know if you play the Heat in the playoff series, you might beat them, but you're gonna come out of it really wounded. Like that is part of it, and that whole like getting uncomfortable thing. But it's also just literally playing the game and being ready to play the game and being ready to do your job, even in a situation where if you are a bench player, a a role player, whatever you the average role player in that same situation on any other team might not look comfortable in that role for whatever reason. If they're wearing a heat jersey and they're coached by Eric Spolstra and they're being in an organization run by Pat Rod, like for whatever reason, they're all of a sudden comfortable in that role and they excel in it. But again, you know, I, I will also say it does still boil down to like, you know, being in Miami is a big advantage. They will get that superstar. That's the like the first pillar of it. Like you take Jimmy Butler away from this and you replace yeah. him with just kind of like an average-ish maybe all-star. The Heat are not here, no matter how good Spolstra is, no matter how good the role players are, no matter how impressive Heat culture is, right? And then the last thing I'll note is just that as much as I do talk about it and praise it, as you know, it's not like I go into the playoffs saying like, well... Now Heat culture is going to kick in and they're going to go this far. Like, I didn't pick them to beat Milwaukee. I picked them to beat New York. I didn't pick them to beat Boston. All I will go into a series saying with the whole Heat culture thing, especially with Jimmy Butler there and Spo there, is simply that they always at least have a chance in a playoff series in ways that a 42-win-8 seed usually wouldn't, you know? Yeah. Um, Okay, I want to hit on just a few more things that I'm kind of going to be watching for. Uh, in game six go for it and you can do the same if you have any leftover thoughts but uh in terms of boston's pick and roll defense so they're switching a ton they're still giving that Derek white switch on jimmy butler even though it kind of got cooked in those first couple games they've stuck with it and you know in a few cases i think it's just like jimmy hasn't been quite as good i don't think you know Derek white has necessarily done anything differently but that switch hasn't burned them as badly. And when they're dropping, usually they're just dropping with Horford. And this is something I want to talk about too, because they're switching Rob Williams out a lot more than we're used to seeing with him. And he's hanging, man. He's hanging. That's been a big story. Horford, I haven't loved what I've seen from him in drop in this series. I think there have been a bunch of times where like 
He's trying to play between the ball handler and the roller and kind of trying to take away both at once. And he winds up taking away neither. Like he's giving up the layup. And then like next time down, he's giving up the lob. And he's sort of trying to do the thing he was doing against Philly where he's showing help for like a second, but then he's retreating to Bam. And I think that the Heat had kind of figured that out. So I'm interested to watch that battleground and like whether the Heat can keep, you know, sort of exploiting him and drop. But with Rob Williams, the Celtics seem to have settled on like our best coverage for him in this series might be just to switch. Uh, we came into this series wondering like what was the right matchup for him going to be. There's no obvious hiding place for him like there was against Philly where you stash him on PJ Tucker. Boom, you've got, you know, this ready made backline helper. He's going to rove. He's going to do his disruptive thing. And that's the best role for him. So what you wind up doing is like he's on Bam a lot of the time that he's on the floor or he's on Cody Zeller. And that means he's put, he's being put in ball screen action. And rather than having him drop back, they seem content to let him switch, including onto Jimmy. He's blocked Jimmy Butler's three-pointer twice in this series already, had a bunch more possessions where he's sort of like slid with him and forced him to pass it off. And I think that one is super important. Like his ability specifically to hold his own against Butler, which I'm not 100% convinced that like he can do that permanently now. Like he's done it in the last couple of games. But if he can, why that in particular matters so much is that like if he gets switched out onto Duncan Robinson, what the Heat can do there is like, okay, Duncan Robinson can like get off the ball and then he can just go space out. And then Rob Williams is no longer available as a helper. That's the danger a lot of the time of like switching your rim protector out onto a shooter. If it's Butler and he can kind of force Butler to get off the ball or if Butler just sort of decides, okay, I want to get off the ball and go move or space out or whatever. You can have a situation where Rob Williams can still be a helper on that same possession. He can go back to roving and like, provide some of that backline help. And I think if he can continue to do that as well as he has in the last couple of games, like that's a massive swing factor because he's looked surprisingly comfortable. I think on those switches so far, he's looked awesome on those switches. Like in game five in particular, again, I mean, part of it maybe is just like Jimmy for whatever reason, doesn't look like Jimmy the last couple of games, but no, Rob Williams looked incredible on those switches on Jimmy. Like, and so I know they would never do this, because it's just like they're winning now and you don't disrupt the flow. I get that. I What I want to know is if if Joel Wolfond was coaching the Boston Celtics right now, given what you've seen, would you think even for a second, like staying with the one big starting five, but having Rob Williams in that starting five rather than Al Horford? Or would you, like most kind of standard coaches, subscribe to the, no, like we don't want to change it up now. Like we found this groove. It's fine. Because I would almost consider making that switch. And and trying to make Jimmy, you know, yeah. I mean, I just went on that rant about how you can't make the heat uncomfortable, but trying to make Jimmy a little bit uncomfortable from the start of the game. I'm all about being proactive. I would not yeah. go into it saying, no, this is what worked. This is what helped us get back mm-hmm. in the series. So we can't change it up. That would not be my approach. I'd be willing to consider it. I would be willing to consider giving the too big look maybe a longer leash and actually maybe playing those two guys together a little bit more in game six than you have in the last few games. Maybe. I think primarily that's been an offensive adjustment for them. Yeah. 
you know, in terms of the defense, Williams proving that he can kind of hang on Miami's most dangerous perimeter players, having him being out there and switching, and also having Horford on the floor to be like, you know, rim protector behind him could be really tough. And so maybe it's situational, right? If you're protecting a lead and you feel like you need to go all in on defense, then maybe you you give that too big lineup a look again. Um, I wouldn't necessarily start it, but I, I actually would consider potentially moving Rob Williams into the starting lineup in place of Horford. Hard to do that after Horford had like the offensive impact he yeah. had last game. Like he was a big part of the three point shooting yeah. barrage for Boston. So I guess you want to see if he can keep that up. And ultimately, just in terms of like one on one defense, you probably trust him on Bam more than you trust yeah. Rob Williams. All right, I'm trying to think what else I have here that I'm going to be watching for. We're getting uh, we're getting pretty deep into the weeds. Yeah. The turnover stuff that's going to be huge. Like whether I, I don't necessarily trust Boston to like continue having that that fat turnover margin. Uh, I, I also mentioned like Boston's offensive pace, and this was a stat that jumped out to me. Their average offensive possession following a defensive rebound in games four and five, nine point nine seconds. Miami's after a defensive rebound in those same games was 13.1. Well, so a massive difference there. And I think not only do they have to sort of prevent Boston from getting into their early offense, but I think they have to get back to getting their offense kicked into gear a little bit earlier as well. All right. My question for you is simply this. So I think like if I had to bet, I'd say the heat win game six, I think it'll be another good game, but I think the heat, pull it out in game six but either way i think whether it's six or seven couple one to two competitive games less in the series could see them going either way are you one of these people who now looks at it as like the heat have to close this out in game six in miami because if it goes to a game seven if the celtics force the game seven after all this and it's in boston it's over or do you after everything we've talked about still say no no even if the celtics win game six in Miami, given everything we've talked about with the Heat, they very much would still have a chance in a game seven in Boston. They very much would still have a chance yeah, in you. a game seven in I'm Boston. I, I was um, curious to hear what you would say, but I'm with you on that. Like for sure, I there's more pressure on Miami now than there was a couple games ago, but I, I'm not looking at it as like, well, they better do it in Miami because they'll have no chance in a game seven in Boston. They will have a chance in a game seven in Boston. Yeah. Uh, I, I have watched too many Celtics games and too many Heat games over the last few years to feel otherwise. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, I mean, like they definitely should try really hard to win game six. I don't think they want to go back to Boston, but I don't think they're going to be dead in the water no. if they lose game six. Uh, should we do predictions or should we not bother? Let's just, let's just I mean, watch and enjoy. Yeah, we can watch and enjoy. Up to you. You're the host today. You can tell me whether you want me to predict or not. No predictions. All right, let's take a quick break there. We'll come back. We'll talk about Lakers Nuggets. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, we've burned most of our runtime here talking about Celtics heat. 
I think that's okay because we know for at least one of the teams in the Western Conference Finals, we're going to get more opportunities to talk about them. But we should extol the Denver Nuggets, even though we're going to have plenty of opportunities to do so because they're going to the finals for the first time in franchise history. Man, I got to say, you know, I, I picked Nuggets in five going to the conference finals, right? So I was feeling pretty confident about them. And yet, listeners of this podcast will know because we talked about it after game one. I was like actually feeling kind of skittish about that prediction, saying I think it's going to be a longer series than I thought. The Lakers really showed me something. They came out with these adjustments and like now Denver has to respond. Denver has more questions despite winning game one than the Lakers do. Well, I didn't think they had more questions. I thought that they had to respond. And I think what I wish I had clarified on that episode was Denver is fully capable of responding and making the right counter adjustments. It's just on them to do it. And man, did they (laughs) like, uh, even though I think, you know, they didn't fully find the counters to like the, you know, the AD, roaming off of Aaron Gordon thing. They certainly did enough. You know, whether that was like at the end of game three, it was Jeff Green closing instead of Aaron Gordon. In game four, it was like doing the stuff we talked about where Gordon is moving around more and setting off ball screens to get AD moving. Ultimately, it almost just didn't even matter because Jokic was so transcendent. Jamal Murray was out of his mind. Uh, They got incredible contributions from MPJ, Bruce Brown, Catavius Caldwell-Pope, just... Just a sensational performance, really on both sides of the ball, I think, in that Western Conference Finals to uh, put the Lakers away in four. Anything else you feel like you need to say about the Nuggets at this point that we haven't already said? The Denver Nuggets are a beautiful basketball team that are a great story of building over the years. You know, obviously the biggest part of all this is that a second round pick in 2014 ended up being one of the greatest big men of all time and a multiple time MVP. But the way that they have complemented Jokic with pieces over the years and finding the perfect pieces like role players, starters, whatever, to complement his very unique game has been awesome. Whether you're talking about a Bruce Brown who's like off ball movement and IQ's like tailor made to play with a Nikola Jokic or Aaron Gordon ending up in the perfect spot for him and and what he does well and what he doesn't do well all of that like I've talked about it before but even just like Michael Malone as a coach growing with his team right like Michael Malone as a coach getting better with his team over the years and the organization sticking with him over the years Jamal Murray becoming like obviously not at the same level but like we talk about Jimmy Butler becoming a different player every year in the playoffs Jamal Murray isn't even an all-star in the regular season. Like, Jamal Murray is a zero-time all-star who, when the playoffs roll around, becomes one of the best guards I've ever seen play back. Like, it's nuts as a shot maker what he becomes when the playoff starts. Jamal Murray had five 40-point playoff games in his first 35 career playoff games, okay? He's one of only 11 active players with that many, one of only 31 players in history with five 40-point games in the playoffs. He did it in his first 35 playoff games. Jamal Murray has played 410 regular season games and has four such performances. Like this dude is a different animal in the playoffs. And it's just like, I think I mentioned it last episode, 
shameless plug for the Scores YouTube page. This week's Unfiltered is all about how Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray are the NBA's best playoff duo. You have an MVP-level superstar that still finds a way to level up in the playoffs. You've got a really good but not great secondary player who's never made an all-star team who becomes a superstar in the playoffs. You've complimented over the them over the years, which is the perfect supporting cast members and role players. You've got a coaching staff you've stuck with over the years. And it's like all culminated in this. And I really think that's beautiful. It's a really cool journey they've taken. And I'm, you know, stoked for them, stoked for the organization, stoked for Malone, stoked for the city and the fans. Like, it's just been a great story. And though there are clowns out there who will say there's nothing compelling about this Nuggets team, not only are they a compelling story, they're just a good story, like, all around. It's been cool to watch this team's progression. And I'll also mention, uh, as part of that whole, like, Jokic and Murray are the NBA's best playoff duo right now thing, and, and again, you can watch this week's unfiltered episode on the Scores YouTube page all about it, but, like, in the three postseason runs, they've both been healthy for together. They got to Game 7 of the second round, they got to the Conference Finals, and now they're in the NBA Finals. Jokic, in eight years and five playoff runs has more conference finals appearances than first round exits. Even in the two years without Jamal Murray in the playoffs, when the Nuggets lost to the Suns, the eventual West champions that year in the second round, and then the Warriors, the eventual champions that year in the first round, Jokic averaged 30 and 12 on 61% true shooting in those two playoff seasons without Murray, dragging those Nuggets teams as shorthanded Nuggets teams as far as they could go. So, yeah, I mean, that's a lot I had to say about the Nuggets, but it's all there. Like, multiple-time MVP who levels up. Jamal Murray is just one of the great playoff performers in the game. Uh, an awesome journey of just over the years, this team, like, building and adding the perfect pieces and sticking with their coach and all of it and finally breaking through, and here they are. And, like, you know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, they haven't even, like, they still have a job to do this year. So much can happen in the offseason. We know how quickly things change in the NBA with injuries and drama and locker room drama you know, player unhappiness, disgruntled star. We know all that, but I'll simply say that at least the way it stands right now with who they have, with the way that their two best players have performed literally every single time the playoffs have rolled around, with the long-term team control both guys are under, and with what I would say like uh, very much a, a conference in flux in the West, the Nuggets are built to just continue to be here for years to come whether that actually means getting to the finals every year but you get what I mean like they are built to just continue to go on these deep runs on the backs of Jokic and Murray every damn year and I am here for it it's really amazing that they just have these two guys who level up in the playoffs every single year like that's really rare I mean first of all to play at Jokic's level and then take it up another gear is like borderline unprecedented but even for someone like Murray, who can play, like, we, we'll say, what, like a fringe all-star level right. in the regular season, and then to take it up to, you know, all-NBA caliber the way that he does in the postseason, like, to, to have two of those guys is really amazing. And, like, it's not a coincidence because they are so mutually complementary in terms of their skill sets and obviously the chemistry that they've honed over so many years, but... To a certain extent, the better one of them plays, the better the other one plays. Like, you think about their two-man game and what you're supposed to do to stop it. And, like, when Murray is shooting the ball the way that he's been shooting it, there's literally no good option. It's like, okay, you want to play a drop? Like, the Lakers tried to do with Anthony Davis basically staying glued to Jokic so he can't get the ball on the roll. Okay, 
Jamal Murray is going to cook you with jumpers. You want to try and take Jamal Murray's pull-up jumper away by switching? You want to leave a small on Jokic? You want to do it that way? You want to try and like blitz Jamal Murray and give Jokic a chance to dissect you in a four-on-three scenario? I, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do with that two-man game? It's just like they're, they're two perfectly fitting, amplifying talents. They make each other better, and they make each other harder to guard. So when one of them elevates their game, like the other one kind of almost as a matter of course follows suit. And man, were they both outstanding in that series against the Lakers. I mentioned I thought it was like on both ends of the floor, a really impressive performance from Denver. It was kind of a culmination of something we talked about in the course of the regular season where we saw more adaptability from their defense. And it's not necessarily baked into their identity, but their base pick and roll scheme for a long time now has been to have Jokic at the level. And they mostly had him playing drop in this series. And part of the reason they were able to get away with that is like LeBron just wasn't LeBron. And so giving him that runway potentially to like rev up and get downhill with Jokic backpedaling wasn't the dangerous possibility that it might have been in the past. Having Jokic play drop was generally pretty effective against a Lakers team that lacked for pull-up shooting threats, especially with D'Angelo Russell struggling the way that he did in that series. Um, But also just in terms of like, you know, the different matchups that they toggled and Aaron Gordon, obviously, his individual defense. MPJ providing backline help like he's done pretty impressively throughout this postseason. Uh, as mistake-prone as he can be, he can still certainly make some impact plays. And then Jamal Murray, after kind of getting cooked in that game one with LeBron going mismatch hunting and attacking him on switches, I thought really cleaned things up. And then he gets to clinch the series with an unbelievable defensive play coming over in help basically tying up LeBron on that drive and giving Gordon time to come over and get the the game ceiling block. I'm I'm so impressed with this team. I think start to finish they've been the best team in the playoffs so far. Yep. And I think no matter who they play in the finals, I'm going to feel pretty comfortable picking them to win it all. Agreed. Lakers, shall we eulogize this this strange unexpected story like really i mean them making it to the conference finals i think is an incredible achievement and i know they went out with a bit of a whimper and i know the subject has now turned to their fraught offseason ahead and lebron james's comments about his future i was gonna say cryptic comments they weren't cryptic at all he was very clear about what he was saying I don't know. What are we to make of this Lakers team and this Lakers season? I think our feelings about this team should be as unique as this team and this season were themselves. Because, like, on one hand, this is a phenomenal story. That a team that started 2-10, a team that was getting clowned and deservedly so the way they were. A team that was as ill-fitting to start the season as they were. And as anyone who watches basketball knew that they were. To remake themselves mid-season at the deadline the way they did, to create a team that really fit well together all of a sudden and complemented LeBron James and Anthony Davis a lot better than it did to start the season, that 
caught fire down the stretch that survived that stretch without LeBron shortly after the deadline, in large part because of the guys that they picked up at the deadline, to then ride that wave through the play-in, into the playoffs, past the rival Grizzlies, past the defending champion Warriors in another LeBron Curry match, like, and into the West Finals. That is a remarkable story. On its face, any other team does that, that's a successful year. You go from 2-10 and 10 to the West Finals, that's a successful year. Full stop. I won't even say when you're the Los Angeles Lakers, it's not a successful season, because screw that. It's more so at this stage in LeBron James's career, when you can clearly see, and before LeBron even said anything, strictly by how infrequently he could dominate the way he used to, right? And it's not to say he couldn't still affect games in ways 38-year-olds with 66,000 minutes in under their belt shouldn't be able to affect games. He could still do that, but he couldn't dominate the way he once did as frequently and as consistently as he once did. So when you see that, when then you hear the comments, when you know you know, there's not a lot of runway left in LeBron's career, let alone in his like championship contending career. It's hard to look at this season the way you could look at it if it was any other team that went from two and 10 and an ill-fitting roster to the West Finals. When it's a team with LeBron on it at this stage of his career, I do think there is a sobering kind of reality of like a wasted year, unfortunately. And that's more so, I think, because of the failures of the front office and the team before all these changes, right? And how poorly they had constructed teams around LeBron and AD leading up to this moment and how it was all wasted. And so I'm torn on how I look at, I view this season for them and like how I view it going forward. Now I will say like, I think they definitely found something in Darvin Ham. I think he had a tremendous season for a first year NBA head coach, both in terms of how he kept the team together, stuck with it through the tough start. A lot of the drama that comes with being the Lakers head coach and I thought pushed a lot of the right buttons in the playoffs and had a really good first playoffs. Like, I think they found something with Ham. You know, they obviously still have AD. They have some cap space. They've got to re-sign Reeves and uh, they have a couple other free agents. But they've got some decisions to make, even regardless of the LeBron cloud hanging over their heads. So, I don't know. There, there's positives. There's negatives. I, I'm torn in whether I view this as a really cool story that was a successful season amidst all this drama or whether in the end I'm like, ah, but it was still kind of a wasted year of the end of LeBron's kind of championship contending years. I I couldn't disagree more. I think the way that I would look at it is this was headed toward being a truly wasted year. Like Lakers going out sad, either in the play-in or just not even making the play-in there, you know, the defining moment of their season basically being LeBron passing Kareem and setting the all-time scoring mark in a loss to the Thunder and everything else around that being pretty meaningless and frankly depressing. And instead they turned it into a smashing success, man. They made it to the final four. You know, one of LeBron's last seasons, however many years he winds up playing after this, like, I still think that is memorable and meaningful in a way that was not guaranteed by any means. There's that in terms of the outcome. There's also the fact that, man, they have Austin Reeves. Like, they yeah. discovered that dude, and he is a dude. That's huge. Anthony Davis, I know, like, the injuries were still there, availability is still a concern, but. Him proving that when healthy, 
he can still be that all-consuming defensive force, like literally maybe the single best defensive player in the world, that is huge. And so, you know, whatever this offseason brings, like LeBron having offseason foot surgery, like them potentially remaking the roster again with a, a, you know, a free agent move or two, depending on which way they want to go, they can come back next season with some hope and justifiable hope, honestly, that they can make another run at this thing. So I will also say the LeBron comments to me are more about leverage and putting pressure on the Lakers front office to get that other star and to maximize. Yeah. You know what? I didn't read it that way at all. And I'm not saying that I believe he's actually going to walk away, but I didn't come away feeling like, oh, he's just trying to put pressure on the front office. It really just read to me as like, man, this is raw. Like, yeah, he is he is hurting right now physically and emotionally. He put everything that he had into this playoff run while, you know, playing on one good foot. Sought went out in like defeat. a blaze of glory, 40 points in that game for a loss, like put everything that he had into that and still came out on the losing end of a sweep. I can understand him just feeling like, man, maybe I just gave all I had to give. And I think that was just him in the immediate wake of that crushing defeat, putting his emotions on the table. I don't think there was anything calculated about it. That's just my read. And if somebody feels differently, that's fine. But like, I I didn't think he was like trying to put pressure or leverage or anything like that. I think he was just feeling raw at that moment. No, that's fair. My point was more so that if there was something calculated about it, I think it was more Lakers related and them making sure they maximize what's left of LeBron as opposed to the theories that people had of like, oh, he's trying to he's trying to overshadow the Nuggets spotlight or he's trying to like divert attention away from the fact he got swept. That's where I thought, no, nah, that's BS. Like I think if there's a calculated point of this, it's more so about him and his team as opposed to like not wanting the Nuggets to get their flowers or wanting to divert attention from his team's failure. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned some of the offseason decisions they have ahead. I mean, like the Reeves one to me is no decision at all. Yeah. They're And they're in a great spot with that because he, like they have matching rights. He's an RFA and he has a tiny cap hold, like two and a bit million dollars. So they can save that until after they decide whether they want to be a, a, an under the cap team and go after, you know, Kyrie, Draymond, Fred Van Vliet, somebody like that. And then they can just blow past the cap to re-sign Reeves to whatever. In order to do that, obviously that means renouncing D'Angelo Russell and Rui. I, the Russell decision doesn't seem like too difficult yeah. a decision to me if it comes to that. Um, but if they decide, you know, free agency isn't the way to go, then I think they'll definitely explore bringing him back. I did want to ask you, because you mentioned, you you said that this failure was more about decisions they'd made in the past and not necessarily this year. But just because I know I've pressed you on this off-air, are you ready to concede the point that they would have been better off no. just going after Mike Conley instead? No, because they wouldn't have got where they got had they done that, like made that deal. I, I'm not disagreeing that Whoa, in a vacuum. What did D'Angelo Russell really you, do to get them to where they got know, to? That? Did you watch any of the time when LeBron was out? He was, whether you want to say it was largely due 
to shot making. And I can't even see you on screen anymore. Wolfon is completely like, Wolfon is so disgusted that I'm supporting D'Angelo Russell. He left the room. Now he just bent down to get something and I couldn't see him. But no, listen, even if you want to say the success he had at points with the Lakers after the trade, strictly due to shot making and luck or whatever, that's fine, but it happened. And what they needed to get back in the mix and with this team, I think was more of a, shot creating, shot making presence that Conley at this stage of his career, I don't think could have given them in the way Russell gave them. And especially then the way it worked out with LeBron getting hurt, they especially needed that. And Russell was really good during that stretch when LeBron was out as more of a primary type creator, finisher in ways, again, I don't think Conley would have been able to give them. So if you're asking me in a vacuum, like if my, Mike Conley, I think, fits most teams better than D'Angelo Russell. If I was building a team right now, even at this stage of their career, I would probably take Mike Conley over D'Angelo Russell. But I think D'Angelo Russell was the better fit for this particular Lakers team this season and what they needed. And I think that ended up proving correct in how he helped them get to where they get to. Now, he had some playoff stinkers. I don't dispute that. But, like, he also had some... Was it in the Warriors series? Like, he had a couple really good games in that series. He, Like, he did things over the course of the season with the Lakers, and especially in that stretch when LeBron was out, when, had it not been for that stretch, they don't maybe even get to the play-in that justified to me getting him. Well, I think you're underrating Mike Conley if you think that just, like, they they wouldn't have made the play in if they had him instead of D'Lo. But you're a stubborn man, and I expected nothing less. So you're sticking to your guns. That's fine. Uh, the the thing that I spotlighted after the deadline, where I was like, you know, in spite of the fact that I thought they would have been better off just getting Conley instead, I really liked the move to get Russell because I thought it just made way more sense with their roster. Obviously, than Russ did. I liked all their moves in totality. We were both really high on them, and just said, this gives them a shot. And the one thing that I kind of spotlighted as a potential pitfall was that they'd gotten a bunch of one-way players. And it surprised me, frankly, that that didn't come back to bite them until the conference finals. But it did come back to bite them in the conference finals where Russell was basically unplayable. Vanderbilt was basically unplayable. Yeah. And I mean, the thing that I didn't expect was that Hachimura of all people was going to be the one guy who could hang at this stage of the playoffs. Like who could bring them that two-way balance? I mean, that move <clears throat> of all of them is just looking like an absolute masterstroke right now. Although again, they might have to renounce him if they want to uh, fulfill their free agent dreams. If indeed they want to go that route. But I think, yeah, at the end of the day, it was like they had to do a little bit too much juggling in terms of like, do we want to go defense? Do we want to go offense? When we're putting our defensive lineups on the floor, they're not able to score enough. Um, I didn't even mention Malik Beasley, right? Like that was the other guy where it's like he didn't even play like yeah. at really any stage of the playoffs. Because they didn't Again, trust I thought, his defense. I thought his shooting was really big in like getting them there, right? In the in the season, especially and um, in the regular season, sorry, especially yeah. in that stretch with the LeBron. But yeah, then at the end of the day, it's like, and his shooting know, would have been really big, right? Like yeah. they really needed that shooting. That was part of the reason I think their offense yeah. just couldn't do enough to keep up with Denver's. 
to your point, put enough shooting on the floor. Denver was really packing the paint on them. Yeah. And to your point, he would have compromised their defense. Yeah. They could have used Malik Beasley, but again, it's like, you know, yeah. three one way players they acquired that could only help them in one area and compromise them too much in the other area for, for them to justify playing them a lot or at all in Beasley's case. So I do think that flaw ultimately came back to bite them, but you know, it's to the credit of the team and the coaching staff and the front office that they were still able to make it to the conference finals in spite of that limiting factor. So I I'm honestly really curious to see, cause I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know if they're going to go the cap space route, I don't know if they want to just run it back. I think there's strong cases to be made in either direction. Uh, is there one that you would rather see them go or that you think would be more beneficial to them, Cash? I mean, I can tell you what's not going to work, and that's going and getting Kyrie. Like, basketball-wise, do I understand it? 100%. Do I Like, the skill set that he has, do I understand how that will help LeBron at this stage of his career, how it'll plug a lot of the holes they have on the offensive end. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. But, you know, we don't have time for me to go into all of the reasons it's not going to work that I've gone into before anytime Kyrie has come up from an unreliability standpoint. So I have a feeling that's how this is going to go. It'll make a lot of headlines. It'll make a lot of basketball sense, strictly talking basketball. Then the games will start and we'll remember why it was not a good idea. So I, I think that's what's going to end up happening. They're going to end up getting Kyrie, and it'll look good at times. And, and, and people... then LeBron's going to retire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then LeBron will retire. That'd be hilarious, actually. Um, I, I could see them doing that for sure, but I could also see them just deeming it not worth the risk as they should. At the end of the day, I honestly think, I mean, Van Vliet's kind of the really interesting one to me there because. He obviously can operate, you know, as an on-ball creator. With Reeves emerging the way that he has, I don't know that they need that other, like, primary type ball handler the way that they once did. And, again, Van Vliet's good on the ball, but he is exceptional off the ball. And his fit really interests me. Honestly, the the Draymond fit's kind of interesting to me, too. Like... Him and AD defensively, his connective playmaking there, like I know maybe the spacing would be a bit of an issue with him, LeBron, and AD in the front court and not like a ton of shooting in the back court either, but I think that would be kind of a sneaky fun fit as well. I'm with you. I think uh, the Draymond thing would be fascinating and I think the Van Vliet fit would be really good and make the most sense out of all the potential targets out there. I feel like it ends up being Kyrie, but I'm for their sake, I'm hoping... It's Van Vliet. And then is that like, are they signing him outright? Is it a sign and trade? Because uh, you'd hope the Raptors would have some no, I would say think, in this. Considering... Yeah, I would think the Raptors push for a sign and trade. And like, But if know, the Lakers have cap space, they, they the Raptors might that. not have any say in the exactly. matter. Exactly. Man, yeah. We'll get into talking about the Raptors at some point. But yeah, if they lose their second best player for nothing after pretty much well not putting all their eggs but like putting a bunch of eggs in the the present basket that'd be tough but anyway coaching that team next year too as i said at the time nick nurse was let go even if you had qualms about nick nurse's coaching in recent years i still believed and i think 
it's only been reinforced since then when you see that he's basically a front runner for the three highest profile jobs out there that say what you will about Nick Nurse, but he would have a much easier time finding a better team to coach than the Raptors would finding a better coach. Hey man, we've been saying for months now, Nick Nurse to Philadelphia is happening. It's yeah. getting closer and closer to reality all the time. I think we can leave all that there. What do you say, Cash? I agree, and I think that's actually a perfect segue to this week's fan shout-out, because this week's fan shout-out goes out to Silas Zareb, I believe is how to pronounce the last name. It starts with an X, but I believe that's how you pronounce it. But anyway, Silas, who reached out on Instagram a few weeks ago to say he's been listening to the show almost from the beginning, because it was when it was a three-man show with us and Will Lou, and he wanted to say that as a huge Raptors fan, he appreciates that we cover the Raptors without being annoying homers about it when we talk about the Raptors on the show. And he feels that uh, the show has helped him understand the strategy and minutia of the game in ways that no other podcasts help him. So Silas, we appreciate you. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for supporting the show. And we hope we can continue to bring you Raptors coverage here and there when it calls for it on the show without being what you consider an annoying homer. Although I guess we will see what happens as offseason because I think it's very possible depending on how the offseason goes. We might be annoying homers if, if things break wrong for the Raptors. In, well, in, what's the opposite of a homer? Because yeah, I am ready to be an annoying I'm, outsider. I'm ready to rain fire on this front office if things go sideways this offseason. Yeah. Well, buckle up, Silas. Hopefully it's not as bad as an offseason as uh, Wolf on Fears. But anyway, again, thanks for reaching out. Thanks for supporting the show. And the usual call out to all of our listeners like Silas, who deserve a shout out for supporting the show the way they do. Hit us up via Instagram like Silas did, did at Joe underscore 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 cash. Hit us up on Twitter at Joey underscore W-Y-O-U or at Joseph Cacharo. Email us, joe.wolfond at thescore.com or joseph.cacharo at thescore.com and let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like or don't like about the show, all that jazz. We will get you a shout out on a future episode, just like we did Silas today. And in the meantime, we will continue feeding you that strategy and minutia that you so (laughs) desperately crave. Uh, We'll be back with an NBA Finals preview. We'll talk to you all next week. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfond. Pound the Rock.